Today, we're talking about the inevitable for women who live at least four to five decades, menopause. There are some unicorns, as we call them, who just stop having periods and have few to no problems during this time. But how common is that actually? And how can the rest of women experiencing the worst of menopause manage the symptoms and get some relief? And did you know men have menopause? It's a tricky time in relationships with all the hormonal changes taking place, but we have an expert in the house to help us navigate the big questions today in our Unprivate Parts podcast. Welcome to Unprivate Parts, a podcast hosted by Women's Hospital. Join us as we pull back the proverbial curtain with honest discussions on women's health and the uncomfortable subjects we all want answers to. Welcome to the Unprivate Parts podcast. I'm Melanie Abear with one of my favorite doctors in the world today, if I may say, to be fully transparent, Dr. Terry Thomas. Hi, Melanie. It's good to be here with you today. It's so good to have you. In full transparency, you did deliver all three of my children. <laughs> this is a coincidence. You're the guest on our on our podcast today, but I'm very excited about it. And the first time I met you, I, you delivered my baby when I was evacuated from a hurricane. Yes. I wasn't even supposed to be in this city. So a yes. uh, very special bond. I, and I always appreciate your expertise and you sharing some knowledge today about menopause. So let's start off with the fact, I said unicorns. I got that term from you because I had mentioned to you that a couple of my friends just have experienced a very easy, they call it menopause. One was between 41 and 50, or 41 and 45 years old when she started having um, very minor symptoms and said it was very easy. They basically quit having periods. You said that's not very common. No, the vast majority of women actually do have some symptoms um, that, you know, can range from mild to severe. So, you know, some patients can have very mild symptoms to where, you know, they don't don't really have any interruptions in life or sleep or thought patterns. But some patients actually, um, you know, have a, a really difficult time going through menopause and it, uh, it tends to interrupt their thought patterns. Um, a lot of patients call it a brain fog, their sleep patterns, sleeping through the night, and, um, and sometimes even some pretty um, significant sexual dysfunction. But there are some unicorns out there, and uh, one day I hope to be one, uh, <laughs> that, that do not really have a lot of symptoms. They just kind of, you know gradually stop having periods. Um, in this part of the country, I liken it to, um, to when your lights go out after, um, you know, with a hurricane and that, you know, you'll, um, you'll, your periods will start quote unquote blinking. So you'll go for a couple of months without a period and then you'll get one and then you may get another one in another three to five months. But typically when you've, um, when you can say I am definitely in menopause is when you've gone 12 full months without any bleeding at all. And the important thing to know about menopause clinically is that once you celebrate that 12 year anniversary, 12 month anniversary, excuse me, then any bleeding after that is considered abnormal and your gynecologist should know about it. Um, and then once you make that 12 month anniversary, you're no longer capable of bearing children. Well, you've just answered several of my questions all wrapped up in one, but we're going to dissect a little bit more into what you what you just talked about. First of all, the average age for menopause is around 51, is that right? That is correct. Yes. What's the youngest you've seen and what's the oldest you've seen? So, um in general, clinically, we say that any anything after 40 is up for grabs. So, 40 is considered the youngest normal menopausal age. Now, um, if you go through menopause at less than 40, then your doctor's probably going to want to order, you know, some lab work and that sort of thing, blood work to see, you know, if there are any uh, abnormalities. We usually 
term that as premature ovarian failure. Um, but anything after 40 is considered a um, quote unquote normal age for menopause, but the average age is 51. Wow. And I didn't know it was, it, it's not common, but I didn't realize that was still considered fairly normal. Yes. 40 it is. years old. Mm -hmm. Is the time and, frame in which you experience menopause at all within our control? Not really. There are some conditions like smoking. So um, smokers typically will have an earlier onset of menopause. But uh, other than that, there's no real. Um, and certainly, um, you know, there are some medications like uh, um, chemotherapy and things like that, that will certainly bring on menopause earlier. But um, no, um, there's no, um, I would say, um, doctor-driven intervention to where you would want to, you know, slow down or stop menopause unless it's, you know, earlier than 40. Or even as a woman, you really wouldn't want to try to delay it or try to uh, take it on earlier, even if that were possible. Sure. Because menopause can cause many other, um, many other health um, setbacks that are unrelated to your, per se, your female parts. So earlier menopause can be associated with bone loss, um, memory loss, um, you know, heart disease. So take, for instance, if, if I have someone that's considering a hysterectomy before she's gone through menopause, I always counsel those patients that we really should consider leaving your ovaries unless there's some, you know, family history of ovarian cancer, unless you've had significant problems from your ovaries, because I can, surgically cause the onset of menopause by removing the ovaries, which can um, cause, you know, untoward effects in terms of your brain development and heart disease and your bones and that sort of thing. What is perimenopause, that time frame before yes. you hit the official mark? Right. So uh, perimenopause is that transition from when you're having regular periods until you go through that 12-month cycle without any periods at all. And so how long does that normally last, that perimenopause? You could have Anywhere from 12 months? one to 10 years. So, you know, like I said before, there are some unicorns out there that just, you know, stop having periods and don't really suffer many side effects. But some women can suffer significant um, side effects from going through menopause. So you mentioned when you stop having periods for 12 months, is that sort of, is that generally the official marker of I have hit menopause now? Yes. Is there any other indicator? No, that's that time frame is generally how most clinicians um, term menopause. Now, of course, you know, like I said before, if you've already, you know, had a hysterectomy and you artificially went through menopause, sure. then that's different. But clinically, once you've made that 12 month anniversary, you're considered menopausal. What about people who have PCOS or don't, don't ovulate or don't have periods or have irregular periods? That can be a little tricky to, to catch the difference. It certainly can be. That's a very good point. Um, typically, people or women with polycystic ovarian syndrome may only ovulate and have periods one to two times per year. So um, in those instances, it can be more difficult to establish when exactly um, they've gone through menopause. And in those instances, then we usually use blood work as an adjunct to help make the diagnosis. How do you know at what point you should see your doctor? Well, if you're having any symptoms. So certainly, you know, lack of a period is the primary way that all of us tell whether or not we're going through menopause. But um, any symptoms like hot flashes or night sweats or, um, you know, trouble sleeping at night, um, any of those can be indicators that you may be going through some sort of hormonal dysfunction. But shoot, this could go on for, like you said, up to 10 years. 
Yes, absolutely. And there was a point in time about 30 or 40 years ago when many women, you know, remained on hormonal therapy for um, for 20 or 30 years at a time. Now, um, our professional organization, ACOG, has really kind of gotten away from that. There was a, a large study about 30 or 40 years ago that said really women should be on the least effective dose of hormones for the least amount of time and then try to taper off of them. Well, that's a great point because I've, I've heard women talk about, in particular, he- having headaches that they uh, attribute to hormones. Is mm-hmm. that is that normal? And, and a couple decades after hysterectomy even. Sure, yes. Yeah. So some women do have more uh, substantial effects from taking uh, hormones, and that could be you know, from taking hormones in the form of a birth control pill all the way to, you know, um, certain times of the menstrual cycle when hormone levels fluctuate all the way to into menopause with taking hormone replacement. So you would say some of the older doctors might differ in opinion on how long to keep patients on this hormones? Uh, maybe not necessarily that, um, but I think every... Uh, a, the opinion differs among different physicians. So, um, and I've heard some female physicians say that, you know, they'll have to pry these hormones out of my, you know, dead hands because I intend to, <laughs> I intend to take my hormones as long as I want to. But in general, um, clinically, it's recommended at the least effective dose for the least amount of time. Well, if the hormones are working the, in terms of the patient's understanding, if the patient feels good and the patient wants to stay on the hormones, mm-hmm. is that something you still recommend, you would recommend in that case? Well, so I just have a really good, thorough discussion with the patient and go over all of the risks and the benefits and why I'm recommending to get off of the hormones. And, you know, at the end of the day, the patient has the right to make an educated decision for herself. So, um, you know, I, I oftentimes will tell patients, I'm here as your advisor, your medical advisor. And at the end of the day, you have, um, you have the power, you have the knowledge to make good medical decisions for yourself. Well, sure. And that's, Hey, we live in America. Mm -hmm. What what do you find is the best way for a patient to take hormones? So usually in this day and age, transdermal um, applications are the, um, are the most efficacious and usually the the quickest acting. So, um, and there are many different ways to do that. There are gels and patches and sprays. Um, uh, there's one spray that I use, um, pretty, uh, pretty on the regular and, um, and it's like spraying on perfume in the morning. So after a shower in the morning, you spray it on your arm, you wait for it to dissipate. Typically I tell patients not to touch or not to let any, um, men or our children or, um, pets touch that area within an hour after application. But, um, you can go about your day just like you normally would. And it's, um, it's a nice way to go because it's self-titratable as well. So um, it comes in an applicator and you can spray anywhere from one to three sprays per day. And the patient can sort of decide, you know, what's the optimal dosing for herself. So the transdermals have really kind of changed, um, revolutionized that, that area of medicine in that typically pills have a first pass effect where the pill goes through your stomach and then your liver and gets metabolized. And then you finally get the benefits from it. But with the transdermals, you get a much um, quicker benefit from the medication. So you would say the majority of women are now using um, hormones through the skin now and not in the pill. I would form. say it's probably about what and what. I don't, I don't know if there's a majority one way or the other, mm-hmm. but. Um, or at least your patients. That's what yes. you generally recommend. Yes. Is there a main complaint that you see on the regular? I mean, I would assume hot flashes with menopause. Is that the main main complaint you get? 
Certainly hot flashes are the, are the main complaints. So, um, you know, and the, some women will only experience them at night. And so, um, my primary way of helping the patient decide whether or not she needs hormones or wants to be on them, um, is, um, or two, two factors. Number one, do you have any medical conditions to where we should consider not putting you on hormones. So certainly if there's a history of breast cancer or heart attacks or strokes, then, you know, we want to be a little bit more conservative about starting hormones. Um, the other thing is, um, patient driven. And I usually just ask my patients, are your symptoms severe enough and often enough that you would want to take medicine every day in order to prevent them? So those are pro the, the primary drivers in terms of starting on hormones. Well, I know you believe in the importance of a healthy diet, which of course is, there's a different definition of a healthy diet depending on who you're speaking to. Sure. Um, but when you mention heart disease and stroke, the risks or the time frame of the onset of those problems and those complications can be controlled by a healthy diet. So at what point do you start talking to your patients, if that runs in their family, about diets that would eliminate or uh, decrease their risk for those conditions that maybe would allow them to um, take the hormones or mm -hmm. a little bit more or a little bit earlier to help relieve them of the symptoms of the menopause? You know, I've said this in other areas that, um, you know, I really feel like prenatal care starts um, from the moment you're born. And um, it's, I think it's really important for us as a society to start educating our children as early as possible about healthy eating and exercise and that sort of thing. So a lot of people put that onus on us as healthcare providers to teach our patients about healthy eating, but that, that really starts, you know, um, I'm, I'm a person of faith and my um, priest at mass one time said that your home is the most important classroom for your child. And so that conversation about healthy eating and exercise really starts in the home and, um, and at school. So that's a conversation that needs not to start at menopause. That's a conversation to be had, you know, for, for children. But being a doctor, you yes. can't be in everyone's homes. Sure, and sure. so, you know, a lot of your patients and I don't know, maybe most of your patients mm -hmm. come in without a proper understanding of even an understanding of dairy and meat consumption. And there's just so much miscommunication and mis or uh, different interpretations of what is healthy and what is not. Uh, so your classroom being your doctor's office, uh, you start, do you start that discussion early on before menopause in your patient's uh, absolutely. room? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, and what specifically do you point to for a healthy diet? Well, so I usually tell my patients, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of not eating lots of processed foods. And that's, you know, I, I try not to do anything to my patients that I don't do myself. So, you know, I really kind of limit my intake of, you know, bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes. And, um, I try to, you know, um, limit my intake of, um, dairy. I, you know, I buy almond milk and oat milk, um, for my home. Um, and, um, I eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, um, typically for our meals at home, we do a lot of chicken and fish. Occasionally I'll do, you know, um, some naughty things like a good pork roast or gumbo and things like that. But in general, we really try to at least six days out of the week, eat very healthy. And I try to, you know, um, I try to impress my patients to do the same. Okay. So the hot flashes, are they as bad as we see on TV? Yes. And even worse. How long do they generally last? Anywhere from one to 10 years, sometimes longer than that. And each episode lasts, could last about how long? Typically, um, 
typically anywhere from like a few seconds to maybe even a few minutes. You know, I heard a patient the other day in the office, she said she and her husband had gone to a wedding and um, when she came back from the bathroom, her husband was like, well, what happened to you? Because her hair was messed up and her clothes were messed up because she'd had a significant hot flash and she had, you know, uh, drenched her hair and her makeup was starting to run. So, um, you know, it can be, you know, we as women, you know, like to look a certain way and, and there's a, a high standard, um, especially in the United States for presentability. And so it means a lot to us to, you know, um, to look presentable. And so that can be a significant, um, you know, that can have a, so, a significant social impact for a woman, um, you know, in terms of her appearance, you know, going through the hot flashes and the night sweats. Sure. And then I would imagine that also has a significant impact on a woman's mental health as well. Yes. Let's talk more about the mental fog, speaking of mental health, the memory loss and things like that. I, I read some research that shows that uh, hormonal changes during perimenopause uh, can even act as a trigger for certain conditions like cognitive decline, heart disease, dementia. Um, what do you make of that? And do you talk about those concerns with your patients? I absolutely, I absolutely do. So, you know, um, one of the things that one of the best ways to prevent that cognitive decline is to stay mentally, um, mentally active. So read as much as you can read, um, you know, stay active in, in terms of your job and, and that sort of thing. So memory is not something that you, um, and, and I'm not a neurologist, so I don't purport to know everything there is to know about memory, but memory is not something that you just kind of lose and floats away one day. You have to actively work on memory. And there's lots of research to show this, you know, you know, as early as your twenties or your thirties, you really do have to work to stay mentally sharp. So, um, that's not something that just happens at menopause. So it's a good idea to always, you know, do word games or, you know, download apps on your phone or just pick up a book and read a book or read your Kindle in order to stay mentally acute. And we know that this again is also linked to what you put into your body. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I myself, you know, if I have a, if I cheat and have a cookie in the afternoon, you know, after lunchtime, I can barely keep my eyes open. So, um, so those kinds of things, is that eating, sugar rush is that sugar so, rush. Yeah. Yes. It can really affect your brain. Yes. And exercise exercise as well. You know, starting out the day, even with a brisk walk around the neighborhood, you don't necessarily have to go to the gym or something like that, but just starting out the day with a brisk walk in the neighborhood or, you know, even walking in place in your home or the treadmill or your Peloton, whatever that may be, are all, all good ways to, you know, start the day on the right foot. Of course, it helps with the, your mood too. What can you expect in terms of mood changes when it comes to both perimenopause, which may take years and, and menopause officially in its marker? Yeah, so um, mood swings can be um, very common during menopause. And, you know, a lot of patients um, can be very negatively impacted by that. You know, they it impacts every relationship in your life with your children, with your spouse, with your friends. You know, and some people end up, um, you know, having depressed type symptoms, not wanting to go anywhere or interact with family and friends because, you know, they feel um, embarrassed um, or unable to control the mood swings. So, um, so that's definitely another aspect of menopause that's important, um, you know, to contact your doctor about for intervention. You mentioned a heavy bleeding briefly earlier. What would that be one of the complications or what other complications could occur that should have you worried? Uh, some changes that could happen as a result of menopause that are not normal. So obviously, you know, osteoporosis, so uh, bone loss is something that can happen 
more dramatically after menopause. So as women, we typically start to lose bone at around age 28. Um, but after menopause, you lose the protective influence of your estrogen, which is our main female hormone. Um, and so when that happens, that process of bone loss actually accelerates. Our bones are constantly, if you will, um, being remodeled. So you have bone buildup and then bone breakdown. And so what happens with osteoporosis is that you're breaking down more than you're building up. And so that process of bone breakdown um, accelerates rapidly after menopause. And so um, just doing things to keep, you know, like living a healthy life and, you know, taking in adequate amounts of calcium can help to protect your bones. Um, uh, but uh, heart disease is another big one, you know, even though I, I joke around um, at some of the talks I give about menopause that many women have wanted to die from menopause, but none have actually done that. <laughs> the number one killer for us in the United States as women is heart disease. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's really important to um, to protect your heart at all aspects of life, but especially as you get into the, the latter parts of life when heart attacks and strokes become more common. Well, you talked about calcium and vitamin D. What are your, what are the sources of calcium that you most often would recommend? Mm -hmm. Probably dairy products are the, are the, are the best sources. And of course, you know, um, and not, I, I, uh, I have debates with people uh, about this all the time, but I'm, I'm not a big lover of milk. I never have been. And so we do almond milk or oat milk in my home. Almond milk actually has um, a, a lot more calcium and vitamin D and less fat and sugar than cow's milk. Um, but um, even things that you wouldn't think of like broccoli, broccoli is a great source of calcium and almonds. So um, almonds are actually the lowest fat highest source of calcium nut that there is. So um, there are other really good sources for um, for calcium, like in terms of vegetables or nuts, um, other than dairy products, if um, if you do not like dairy or do not want to do dairy. Isn't there a, uh, sort of a window of opportunity for women to load up on the calcium supplements for the bone density before the those supplements are no longer as effective to build the bone density? Um, certainly, you know, it's, it's a good idea for, uh, for all of us at any age to make sure that we have adequate intake of calcium. Um, just like I stated earlier, you know, your bone starts to break down at 28 years old and it just, that process rapidly increases after menopause. So adequate intakes of all of your nutrients are important at every age. Could help maybe just give you some extra bone density so that it doesn't affect you quite as hard sure, when you hit menopause. How does your sex life, how is your sex life affected by menopause generally? So, um, so that's another, uh, that's another very common reason for why patients seek care during menopause. So, um, many women say that they, um, have a lack of interest in, uh, intercourse. Some women say that, um, it's painful. Um, and so, um, the lack of uh, sex drive or the lack of interest is certainly uh, a longer conversation. So usually I'll um, start to scratch the surface at an annual visit and then bring those patients back either for a telemedicine visit or a longer visit later so that we can delve into that a little bit more. You know, um, sex drive can be a little bit more complicated because there's so much involved. There's, you know, relationship issues and then you know, uh, religious perceptions and things like that, that affect your sex drive. Um, and, um, 
Uh, sometimes it can even be a partner issue in terms of like, you know, sexual dysfunction for your partner. Um, so that's a more complex conversation. Um, but in terms of the physicality of sex, um, for us as women, the vagina gets shorter and less pliable, less stretchy, if you will, with menopause. And so there are two mainstays that I usually um, uh try to coach my patients on. One is uh, vaginal lubricants. So um, you want to find a really good vaginal lubricant. And really, lubricants are something that can be used at any you know point in, in your uh, sexual career. Um, but um, the other thing that I usually um, impress upon patients are vaginal dilators. So um, there's a little website that I refer patients to. And the vaginal dilators are just, you know, they start out very small, and then they go all the way up to the largest size. And it's just a gradual, not painful way of sort of, you know, increasing that vaginal size again so that sex can be something enjoyable. And on a regular basis, you do see women have relief from using those. Absolutely. Um, okay. The ones using that are willing those, to do it. Um, right. Yeah. And, some, and talk about it. Yeah. Because I imagine women, not everybody really even talks about it, even with their doctor. Absolutely. Some people, um, it's, I so enjoy taking care of women. Some people are just really forthcoming, like like you know, me. Yeah, some, it's great. <laughs> private you know, parts podcast. <laughs> yeah, some patients are really forthcoming, and you know, if you ask them the questions, they will tell you, and they will, you know, and um, but some patients you really do have to coach them, and you know, or sometimes ask the um, the nursing the nursing assistant to leave the room while we have a more private conversation. But I find especially. It's um it's wonderful taking care of women at a certain point in their lives because you develop this uh, maturity and this um, sort of attitude where I'm just me, take it or leave it. And um, I find that, you know, with, with time and maturity, a lot of women become a lot more comfortable in their skin and they're a lot more willing to just say, look, this is what's going on. Help me fix it. That brings us back to the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. And it's liberating. Mm -hmm. And when women start to talk... Right. We make things happen. Yes. Right. And and we we um help comfort each other mm -hmm. and let each other know you're not alone. This is something normal. We're all going through it. Uh sleep disturbances. How yes. severe can this be? And what do you recommend for that? Very severe. You know, for us as women, um, and we see this a lot with pregnancy as well. Many women have weird dreams or they're, you know, uncomfortable sleeping at night. So those sleep disturbances can start you know, as early as pregnancy and depending on when you have your pregnancies, you know, that will start then. And then of course, you know, with raising toddlers, there's a lot of sleep disturbances with that. So sleep disturbance is not something that's, you know, um, specific to menopause. A lot of women go through their lives with like longstanding chronic sleep disturbance, and then it just gets worse with menopause. So um, the first thing that we try to, um, that I try to impress upon my patients um, our behavioral changes. So, and that's something that I start coaching patients on, you know, during pregnancy. So have good sleep habits. So, you know, you don't want to drink a lot of fluids right before bedtime. You certainly don't want to do anything stressful before bedtime, like arguments or bills or studying. Um, you also want to uh, not answer emails or play on your iPad or iPhone right before sleep, because that can certainly, you know, make it harder for you to fall asleep or, you know, stay asleep. Um, and then setting the temperature in your room or in the house, that's a good temperature so that you're not too hot or too cold, turning off any external light sources, making sure that your room is really dark. Um, so creating a good sleep environment is very important. And you don't ever want to do anything stressful um, in your bedroom. Really, your bedroom is, is 
your little sleep cave. You really want to make it a place for either sleep or sex. Nothing stressful should be happening in your, in your bedroom because all of those things affect you. And, you know, um, certainly, you know, the proper bedding and bed clothes, you know, I even read some research that, um, sleeping in the nude was healthier. So, um, really, yes. So, um, you know, you want to make sure that whatever you're sleeping in your bed, clothes, your sheets, everything is perfectly in tune with, with sleep. I mean, get the computer out of your bedroom. Get you the computer, computer out of your bedroom and, and, the, and the kids too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's the first thing that I usually coach. And then if I have a patient that says, you know, look, I tried all that stuff and I'm still not sleeping at night. Then we start talking about, um, any kind of, um, you know, prescription medications. And that can range anywhere from Ambien, which is a sleep aid, um, all the way to maybe an evaluation for sleep apnea. So some patients have sleep apnea and um, that's a medical condition where it's hard for you to breathe while you sleep. So sometimes we'll have some patients do that. Um, And then if all else um, is normal, then at that point, we'll start talking about hormones um, to aid in sleep. Sure. What about melatonin? I hear a lot of even children taking melatonin before bed Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something that I've done for my kids to help with sleep. Melatonin can be a very good aid. Um, It's an over-the-counter supplement. And, um, but the problem with melatonin is that there, um, there certainly is an optimal dosing. And sometimes if you get to the higher doses, it will either have the opposite effect or no effect at all. What's the biggest myth do you think you hear about menopause? Maybe one of the common misconceptions is that it's so super bad for all of us. I know we talked earlier about, you know, menopause is, you know, either not severe or, um, you know, just mild for some patients. Um, But everyone seems to think that menopause is, you know, the end of your life when sometimes it actually is not. Sometimes it's the beginning. Yeah. Sometimes it's very liberating and you're, you know, usually when you're menopausal, you're at a good point in your career, you're establishing your career. A lot of women have finished raising their children and it's time for them to, you know, be empty nesters and and get back to their, to get back to their marriage or their spouse. Um, So menopause can, for some women be, um, be a huge interruption, but for some women it can be very liberating and you don't have to worry about pregnancy anymore. You don't have to worry about it, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's how I feel. I, you know, after three, we don't want to have to worry anymore. <laughs> but I, I did ask about the, we, we talked about the heavy bleeding and I asked if there's any other indicators that something is wrong. And that led us to talk about bone density and uh, kind of brought us to another area. But is there, are there any other physical symptoms that someone might experience that would not be normal going through menopause and they should go see their doctor immediately when that happens? Um, I would say any physical symptoms that, um, that impede your ability to live and function normally in terms of your work life and your social life. Um, the bleeding is probably the most, um, worrisome thing for us as clinicians, um, because the bleeding can signify uterine cancer. And what if you can't get in with your doctor right away when you start having the hot flashes or some other symptoms, uh, is there any sort of relief that you would recommend while you're waiting to see your doctor? that could help you at home. So there are lots of over-the-counter supplements like Estrovin and things like that that you can use um, before you get in with your doctor. And actually a lot of primary care physicians um, are comfortable treating menopausal symptoms. So if for some reason, you know, one doctor's too busy, you can certainly try to get in with another. Um, And then I would say, um, you know, just behavioral changes like, you know, sleeping with minimal clothing or, um, you know, having a fan. There's this neat... um, uh, 
tool called a bed fan. Actually, a patient told me about it. It's a little fan that sits on the floor and it blows cool air underneath your sheets. So there are lots of just over-the-counter or, you know, things that you can order, you know, through Amazon or any of the other websites that can really kind of help to minimize your symptoms until you get to the point where you're ready for prescription meds. And interestingly enough, if menopause is affecting your sex life, it might not only be you. It could be your husband who now I've learned goes through menopause. Yes. You, I had never heard of that term before, uh, but I guess it's a fairly new term. Around 2014, I read from a Time magazine. Is that something you talk to your patients about as well? Absolutely. So, you know, um, obviously it takes two. And so, um, you know, in that conversation with my patients about, you know, intercourse and sex and that sort of thing, 50% of the conversation is about the partner. What does your relationship look like? Are there any issues with infidelity or um, any stressors with, you know, finances or anything like that? And then I ask about the physical aspects of it. You know, um, are you attracted to your partner? Um, is your partner able to achieve an erection? Um, are there any anything, um, any sexual dysfunction things going on with your partner that may um, inhibit your ability to have a good sex life. Because is, is menopause inevitable like menopause is? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, a lot of people know it as low T. It's just, you know, where the testosterone level. So for us as women, um, our main sex hormones are estrogen and progesterone, which are derivatives of testosterone. And then testosterone is the main male hormone. So we have testosterone just like men do, just not nearly as much as they do. And so the testosterone for them is the main driver for things like energy and sex drive and that sort of thing. So men can definitely, you know, undergo decreases in testosterone, just like we undergo decreases in our sex hormones. But it's not definitely going to happen to them. Them, the way we know we will at some point experience a menopause if we live long enough. Yes. Some men don't have menopause, but it's a good idea maybe to get their levels, to, their testosterone levels checked. Sure. If, um, and you know, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, on men, but you know, if, um, if the partner's having any problems with fatigue or low sex drive, those certainly could be some indicators that, you know, he needs to get um, checked with his primary care physician. All right, Dr. Thomas, what about any resources that you want to leave our listeners with? Maybe some good websites or books that you might point them to. Sure. So um, I, um, our website, um, uh, ACOG, which is the American College of uh, OBGYNs, has um, some uh, wonderful resources, and uh, you can find it at acog.com. Um, but that's generally where I refer all patients to, just because um, it's um, very, very much a vetted website, and they have lots of other resources on there that um, that have some very um, good information, reliable information. I feel like in this day and age, uh, it's very easy to get unreliable information. And so I generally refer patients to the ACOG website because all of the information on there is vetted. Yes, that's very helpful because we end up online looking down all these rabbit holes. Sure. And your mind can spin in several different directions that are not helpful. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. You're Thomas. You're welcome. We enjoyed having you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Good to be here. No. Yeah, right. Thank you. Wonderful discussion. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unprivate Parts. Be sure to follow Women's Hospital on social media and follow us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Thank you for listening.